Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 100 for December the 7th, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I have Paul Ducklin as my guest this week. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. It's the Benjamin Franklin edition. Yeah, 100 podcasts. There's a lot of things going on in the time that I've been away and not doing podcasts for the last five or six weeks. So we've got an assortment of stories from very current to a little bit, you know, over the last few weeks. We just want to cover the main things that seem to pop out and uh, prove some interesting points uh, that, that we can all learn from. The first one I want to talk about is John McAfee, wanted in regards to the investigation of a murder in Belize and was on the run, uh, hiding from the Belize government, trying to make his way to Guatemala. And in the process, he uh, posted some photographs, but mistakenly posted the geographic location or geotagging data that was embedded in the photos. Well, he didn't do that, Chester. He was actually with some journalists, and they took the photograph and published it as part of this article series they were working on, and they forgot to remove the EXIF data. Well, that's kind of even worse when you, when you think about it, because the problem is people are taking photographs of one another frequently in public places, and not everyone wants to be identified, let alone have their location necessarily identified. Well, <laughs> granted, hopefully most listeners of the chat chat aren't necessarily fugitives. I do think many of our listeners are privacy aware and very concerned about protecting their privacy. And there's not much you can really do, right? I mean, all these devices by default, turn this stuff on. So you have to assume if someone's taking your photo that that information is being collected with it, right? Because I noticed my iPad, my Nexus 7, my, even my BlackBerry all had this geo thing turned on when I take a photograph, whether I chose to or not. Yes, and I have found on mobile devices I've used recently that if you have geolocation turned off, when you use a service that the vendor of the device thinks would benefit from geolocation. And they're not saying whether it would benefit you or them. They're just saying this would be a lot better if you turned on geolocation. Would you like to do it now? The pressure to do so is actually pretty enormous. And I don't like that. I think that the risks associated with geolocation are significant enough, namely that it simply says where you are all the time, as John McAfee found when he stepped across the Belize border. Yeah, you know, I guess it's good that it, it's getting so much uh, awareness with the public because people, I, you know, I talked to some journalists and a lot of people were kind of unaware that the default is to do this. And they're like, oh, do I have to like plug in a GPS to my camera? And I'm like, well, if your iPhone's a camera, it's already got the GPS. I mean, that's kind of how most of these are taken, right? This isn't people pulling out their DSLRs and, and optionally plugging in the paid for GPS module. This is mostly using devices that you're carrying around that are like little tracking pods uh, if you don't uh, thoroughly scour through the security settings. Chester, you may remember a few months ago, almost as a joke on Naked Security, I published a photo that I took on the way to work here in North Sydney, a Japanese restaurant that was offering free drinks, if you like, us on Facebook. And as a kind of a puzzle, I said to readers, See if you can work out where the restaurant is. And within a few minutes, the first entrance in that little competition started flowing in from the geolocation data that I had in the image. And for most people, they hadn't even had to save the image to a hard disk and analyze it with a hex editor or an image processing program like Photoshop or the GIMP. They'd simply uploaded the image to a cloud service designed to tell you all about the image and immediately came back not just with the location, but also the address. 
on the problem front, uh, you know, we talk frequently uh, about Mac malware on Naked Security and here on the podcast and things, trying to raise some awareness about it. But the Dolly, you know, a website associated with the Dalai Lama this week had a Mac, what we call a rat or remote access Trojan. What's interesting to me is kind of the types of malware we're seeing targeting Mac users. You know, we reported earlier in the year on things like the flashback Trojan, and we've talked about fake antivirus. And, and so some of these things are very uh, public-facing, similar to their Windows brethren, where it's just ways to try to scam you out of dollars. But the other kind that we're seeing mostly on the Mac is rats, these remote access Trojans. I mean, as a Mac user yourself, do you think that Mac users are, are often high-value targets or more high-value targets are Mac users, which is creating kind of an ecosystem around developing these remote access Trojans or spying Trojans? Chester, every time something comes up to do with Mac malware, or for that matter, malware on mobile devices, anything that isn't Windows, we get a raft of conspiracy theories about, oh, I wonder why they're targeting these guys now. And you can come up with lots of reasons. Maybe Mac users are better looking, they're smarter, they've got more money, they're more likely to be sympathetic to the Tibetan cause. Who knows? I think the main reason is that they're out there on the internet there's a significant number of them, and they are good potential victims for any cyber criminal. So it's almost as though it doesn't matter what the reason is. If you think there's some magic smoke in your Mac that means that you're not going to be the target of at least some cyber crooks, think again. Well, I think it also suggests to a degree that Mac users aren't necessarily any better at this uh, patching and keeping their systems up to date game. I wonder if Mac users in their thoughts that they're safe and secure because they're on a Mac also don't want to apply updates. Chester, I think that if you're already in a frame of mind that suggests that you're kind of invulnerable because of your choice of platform, i.e. I bought a Mac so I'll be all right, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that your attitude to patching is going to be half-hearted at best. Well, and sometimes companies set a bad precedent uh, and take away features as well. I've heard a lot of people complain when they upgraded their iPhone 4 to iOS 6 because of the, the Apple Maps fiasco. And, you know, they're going, oh, I should have never done that update. And, you know, they don't think about the hundreds of security fixes that they also got when they went to iOS 6 because the fixes for the vulnerabilities were bundled in with other changes to functionality that they may or may not like. I think sometimes we can get a little bit too tied up in the featureitis and forget that in many cases there are significant aspects of updates that are there to help us. And sometimes, sorry to have to say it, you sort of have to bite the bullet. Yeah, and I can recommend to everyone not to turn right when you're halfway across the bridge, as I had the Maps application tell me recently. Well, it depends what bridge you're on, Chester. Do you know that one of the original plans for the Sydney Harbour Bridge was that it would be Y-shaped? and that there would actually have been an opportunity to make left and right turns on it. Well, no, I did not know that. <laughs> I suspect somebody who owned a steelworks had some interest in making the bridge bigger than it ended up. <laughs> uh, so it was in the news that the Swiss NDB, which is their intelligence agency, seemed to misplace a couple terabytes of sensitive intelligence that was shared with them by the American and British governments. I found this a rather shocking, actually, that, that it's actually even possible to steal this information. And, and I would have hoped we learned a lesson from Bradley Manning about allowing people access to information they don't necessarily require. 
I have to say, I, I was shocked enough that I started smiling and then sniggering and then full on laughing. You know, of all the nations that are associated with accuracy and engineering and precision, it's the Swiss. So I could have imagined a headline like Swiss Intelligence Agency loses 116 bits of sensitive data, but not terabytes. I mean, that seems like carelessness on a rampant scale, doesn't it? Well, yeah. And, and I mean, to continue the irony, I mean, he was discovered after attempting to open a Swiss bank account at UBS uh, for his ill-gotten gains where he'd have sold the data, allegedly. The silver lining in that is it does show that defense in-depth works, doesn't it? Well, we don't know for sure if the data was ever leaked to anyone, so it's hard to say what actually worked or didn't work. It does go to show, you know, that in these days of everyone being fearful of the cloud and of hackers from the outside, internal threats are still something that you do need to concern yourself with. Yeah, and and in organizations, when we talk about encrypting data that's on the network, and they go, well, you know, everybody on the network is trustworthy. And I'm thinking, actually, half your people are off the network. They're at the cafe, they're at the airport, they're at the hotel. And meanwhile, the bad guys are probably, uh, somebody probably visited the Dalai Lama's website this week, and potentially the bad guys are on the inside. So you really, whether the bad guy's an employee or whether it's a cyber criminal that's taken over one of your PCs, strong authentication and protecting of data against insiders can help defend it against outsiders as well. Well, Chester, it's interesting, just earlier, you, you were talking about the NASA data loss. And what's come out of that is very much what you suggested. NASA has actually changed their attitude and said, yeah, we're, we're not just going to change our policy with words. We're actually going to change our attitude to encryption in practice, and we're going to do it jolly quickly. Yeah, in fact, uh, we'll talk about that now. I mean, you know, NASA had a, 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 I believe it was a third data incident, data loss incident within about a year's time. Um, this time it was a lot of employee data. There's looking to be some lawsuits over it because they were actually collecting information that arguably no organization should necessarily be collecting about their employees, but we're not going to talk about the privacy implications of this as much as the data protection side. And it was another stolen laptop situation, and they had had this happen previously and make a lot of press. And yet here we are, you know, a year later, and the laptop was still unencrypted. It was around November 15th that this was hitting the news, and NASA's response was, in essence, all portable devices will be encrypted I think 45 days was what they said. I believe December 30th is their drop dead. You know, it will not be in the field if it is not encrypted. I question that it's only field machines, but hopefully maybe this is stage one, right? Like, you know, let's get the remote stuff done first so that every time we lose a laptop, we don't have a repeat incident. Yes, I think it's a case of sort of being thankful for small mercies, but it does show that where there's a will, there's a way. And the fact that they've decided that They've obviously had enough lip service paid towards security because they've botched up for the third time. It does prove that it's possible to implement policies that involve quite a big procedural change quickly, and I don't doubt that they'll achieve it. Yeah, I mean, encryption isn't that hard. I mean, it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to make a NASA joke. And... Chester, I've been waiting for you to squeeze that in somehow since I first mentioned NASA, and I think you did it very well. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and speaking of space, uh, some Romulan Carters apparently stole a bunch of uh, uh, credit card details on Australians. I saw you wrote up. What was the scoop on that one? Romulan Carders. That sounds interesting, Chester, but I think you mean a Romanian. And you're quite right. They uh, have been arrested in Romania and presumably will be charged. 
this was for some crimes that happened, I think, 12 to 18 months ago. Wheels turn slowly with international jurisdictional stuff, but it's good news that this has happened. These guys ended up, apparently, with half a million Aussie credit cards. Of those, they used about 30,000 of the cards before they were busted, and they averaged about $1,000 per card. So that's a, a neat $30 million, if you don't mind. And, of course, not one of those crooks actually was in Australia at the time of the crime. Uh, it seems, unfortunately, that they were able to get into a small biz retailers or merchants payment network and pretty much operate the point-of-sale software as if they were sitting in Australia. So my understanding is that PCI DSS had been followed, at least up to a point, so everything's nicely encrypted and properly stored, but they left a back door open. RDP, once again rearing its ugly head, allowed the crooks to connect into the network and they were able to retrieve and then abuse the data remotely. Well, I, I mean, this is just another example of why two-factor is not a luxury anymore. It's a requirement. I mean, unfortunately, passcodes, passphrases, passwords, whatever you want to call them, just aren't good enough. And, you know, while things like SMS two-factor and all this may not be perfect, there may be, you know, there's Android Trojans, there's this, there's that. We've at least got to implement things that start down the two-factor road, even if you can't afford a full-on enterprise uh, solution, because uh, the, this stuff is largely avoidable with something as simple as a second factor. And, chaps, if you're going to spend $247 on a super fancy triple deadbolt for your front door, don't leave the bathroom window open. Well, yeah, there's that as well. And I actually find some of these stories a little encouraging. Another reason I brought it up, not to make fun of the Romanians or the Romulans, was that both Romania and Estonia, where we do see a reasonable amount of cybercrime originate, seem to be taking a lot of action on the law enforcement side, albeit slowly, um, at enforcing some of these things and going after these guys. And that's really encouraging as well, because we often talk a lot about uh, former Soviet republics and all the cybercrime stuff originating for that region. And we rarely have anything positive to say uh, about law enforcement. And um, I hope that that international cooperation is both uh, continues, but also, you know, maybe those wheels will get lubed up a little bit and be able to move a little faster and catch more of these crooks. It also means that reporting cyber crimes against you, even if you're carded only for a small amount, is really important because it's through those reports that law enforcement are actually able to get those wheels turning in the first place. Well, that uh, concludes Sofa Security Chat Chat episode 100. And uh, as always, our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com. They're also uh, available via RSS or on iTunes. If you're an iTunes listener, I encourage you to please uh, rate our podcast. Uh, even if it's uh, not the most glowing rating in the world, we'd love to hear your opinions and your ratings and your feedback on the, uh, the work that we do here on the podcast. If you love our work, tell your friends. If you've got a problem, tell us. Exactly. And uh, for the latest security news, as always, you can get that at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And until next time, stay secure.